Vacation starts with VA. Whether you're feeling beachy, mountainy, or every E in between, you'll find all that you love all in one trip to Virginia. Start yours at virginia.org. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I'm Angela Ledgerwood and this is Lit Up, a podcast about books, writers, life and love and all things literary. It's my great pleasure to have Mohsin Hamid in the studio today, and he's here to talk about his newest novel, Exit West. You'll have seen it covered in all the newspapers on radio, and you'll hear it more, I'm sure, when all these prizes are announced, because it is beautiful, important, and timely, and I'm so pleased to have him here. As an introduction, I'm going to read the first sentence to you to give you a taste. In a city swollen by refugees, but still mostly at peace, or at least not yet openly at war, a young man met a young woman in a classroom and did not speak to her. So this sets the scene for a swiftly told love story between Nadia and Saeed, whose relationship is pressurised and contorted by war. In this unnamed city, suspended somewhere between the past, the present and the future, Text messages and one hour of daily internet connect the couple. First, the rich flee, then communication halts, and as the violence escalates, they must decide how and when to escape their crumbling homeland. Mossam is also the author of The Reluctant Fundamentalist and How to Get Filthy Rich in Asia, and it's my great pleasure to welcome him here today. Said's mother had the commanding air of a school teacher, which he formerly was, and his father the slightly lost bearing of a university professor, which he continued to be, though on reduced wages, for he was past the official retirement age and had been forced to seek out visiting faculty work. Both of Said's parents, the better part of a lifetime ago, had chosen respectable professions in a country that would wind up doing rather badly by its respectable professionals. Security and status were to be found only in other, quite different pursuits. Said had been born to them late, so late that his mother had believed her doctor was being cheeky when he asked if she thought she was pregnant. Their small flat was in a once handsome building with an ornate though now crumbling facade that dated back to the colonial era in a once upscale, presently crowded and commercial part of town. It had been partitioned from a much larger flat and comprised three rooms, two modest bedrooms, and a third chamber they used for sitting, dining, entertaining, and watching television. This third chamber was also modest in size, but had tall windows and a usable, if narrow, balcony, with a view down an alley and straight up a boulevard. This third chamber was also modest in size, but had tall windows and a usable, if narrow, balcony 
with a view down an alley and straight up a boulevard to a dry fountain that once gushed and sparkled in the sunlight. It was the sort of view that might command a slight premium during gentler, more prosperous times, but would be most undesirable in times of conflict when it would be squarely in the path of heavy machine gun and rocket fire as fighters advanced into this part of town, a view like staring down the barrel of a rifle. Location, 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 the realtors say. Geography is destiny, respond the historians. War would soon erode the facade of their building as though it had accelerated time itself, a day's toll outpacing that of a decade. Thank you. There is another part in the book where you mention how people's relationships to windows changed. And when I read your book, I was very conscious of looking out my window. And I'm just imagining if everyone looks out their window now and kind of takes in what you've just written and how all of a sudden that's when that switch happens, the, you know, the, the premium view turns into the thing that could kill you. Um, you brought that to me so clearly. Was there a part in your life where you had to think about this, where your relationship to windows changed? I live in the city of Lahore in Pakistan, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and for the most part, it's relatively peaceful, and uh, life goes on, and we have literary festivals and art galleries and restaurants. Um, but every so often, uh, something horrific does happen. And um, a few years ago, a friend of mine told me a story of how um, a bomb blast had gone off not far from their home and his wife had been sleeping uh, uh, on the bed and their window had shattered, the glass had fly flown in and hit the wall above her and sort of, you know, sprinkled down on her. And, uh, and how he was getting blast-proof blast window film uh, put on his windows. And that was the first time I'd heard of it. But since then, many people I know and restaurants and public places and law have got that. And uh, something changes. I think, you know, windows we normally think of as a way for us to look out at the world. Mm -hmm. But when the world starts to come in through the window, uh, it becomes much more frightening. I felt like this book is like that. Like it starts, well, it's so intimate because it's about this couple, um, Sayed and Nadia, who, you know, as they're falling in love, I got to fall in love all over again with them. And I... I hope I haven't been creepy when I've described your book to people and said it's beautiful and a bit sexy, you mm. know, which I think in the context of everything else, you know, the, that intimate falling in love part seems like a small part of the book. But I think it is this way, it's a way in. And for you, I mean, why was it important to have these two, well, they're not lovers, but they're... This, this pairing for us to have a window into this kind of larger concept? Well, um, they are lovers in a way, of course. Yes. Um, there's, there's, uh, and I do think of them as lovers. The book in, at its heart is a love story, and in particular it's, it's a particular type of love story, which is one we've, many of us will have had, um, sort of a first love between two people who are changing very rapidly, and because they're changing very rapidly, it's very difficult to keep themselves together. And, and so say the Nadia's attraction to each other, even though they're very different, uh, he is a bit more religious in outlook, she is much less so. Um, he is more nostalgic in outlook, she's desperately looking to move forward. 
in life. And, um, and there's a tension between these two characters. Uh, but actually, the tension between them as two human beings and the tension between them and their worldviews, um, and even the physical expression of that tension, is, is pretty central to the book because the book is in many ways about, um, about the cross-fertilization of things that are very different to each other, uh, about mashing things together that, that seem to be in separate places and seeing what happens. And, and I think that's fundamentally um, a romantic prospect and even you know, uh, a sexy prospect, although these days when we talk about different kinds of people coming together, so often we're told it's a frightening prospect. Well, I'm thinking of Nadia because I guess as a woman, for, for me she was my way in, right? Um, and there, I'd love you to explain a little bit. So she is less conservative. She's actually pretty, I just loved her. I was like, I want to be her. She rides a motorcycle. She, has, she lives alone, which is unusual. And yet Saeed asks, you know, if, if you don't pray why do you wear your robes? Because she wears the conservative and, you say, kind of virtually all-concealing black robes. And what I love best is, I I love how I'm telling you how your book goes, but when she says, you know, she smiles and she says, so men don't fuck with me. Mm. Now, why why was it important for you to, for her to have the robes and for her to keep them even when she migrates to these other places? One thing which I noticed when I moved back to Pakistan was <clears throat> since no women in my immediate family dress in that way, um, uh, my instinct was to be sort of nervous and frightened in a way by, by women who choose to cover themselves. And uh, if my daughter suddenly announced, you know, she's seven, but if when she grows up she announces I'm going to do this, I would be quite upset actually. But that said, as I met more and more women working in the public domain or at universities or uh, in public life, it became clear to me that for many women, um, uh, these conservative coverings were a way to venture forth into the world. They actually mm -hmm. weren't a way to, um, to preclude uh, modernity, but they were a way to enter into modernity. And so for Nadia, who lives alone, um, it can be dangerous for young women who live alone, are unmarried, um, have no male um, companion or guardian, in, in their city. And so the robes are a protection. Also, there's a, a good friend of my wife's who's, a, uh, uh, who's become quite a famous TV star in Pakistan. And whenever she goes out, she's mobbed by people. So she started wearing this kind of covering just to go out incognito. So it's sort of, you can imagine, it's the, it's the, you know, it's the hoodie and sunglasses of, of a TV star. And, and I thought, I began to think of the idea of this kind of covering as being a way of not being determined by the gaze of other people. Mm -hmm. that uh, it's a way to be in the world and to say, look, I'm going to look at the world. I'm not going to be shaped how, by how the world looks at me. And so Nadia, in that sense, is, is the opposite of what I think many people would expect. Casting back to your experience, I was lucky, in, well, I was lucky enough to go to your a book party you had uh, last week, and it was mentioned, you know, everyone was worried, like, would you be able to enter the country? And I think you know, Riverhead, your publisher had a lawyer at the airport and all these things. When did you first come to the US and how was that kind of entry experience different to the one that you experienced last week um, coming in the light of this, the Trump ban? Well, I first came when I was three years old. Oh, 
1974, I came to America. My father was doing his PhD at Stanford. And he was an uh, economics professor. And my father, my mother, and I came together to the United States. And, um, and I was a little kid in California. I didn't speak uh, English. Uh, but within months, I spoke only English. I'd forgotten Urdu. I went back to Pakistan at the age of nine. Wow. And at that point, I'd forgotten Urdu and forgotten Pakistan. And I was really a Pakistani uh, sort of, I was a migrant to Pakistan from America. Then back at 18, and I probably entered the United States subsequently maybe 100 times, 200 times. Uh, I've lived here 17, 18 years of my 45. And this particular entry, I was much more nervous about than any of the previous ones. One's heard so much about, you know, Australian 70-year-old children's novelists being held at Los Angeles airport and left weeping, you know, after hours of questioning. And I thought, you know, if it can happen to a 70-year-old Australian woman, who knows what will happen to me. But I breezed through in 15 minutes. It was the easiest immigration experience I've probably ever had in my life, whether that was because the flight was mostly empty, uh, people being so terrified by the mm -hmm. travel ban as to not want to come, or just because of good luck or having met a nice person at the immigration counter, um, maybe all of those things. But what's happened now, I think, isn't that we are guaranteed that something terrible will happen when we encounter officialdom, uh, particularly immigration officialdom in the United States. Uh, but, but the notion that a great deal of arbitrary power has been given to individuals, and in fact that they, they are perhaps encouraged to use that power, is frightening. So. It's like in Pakistan, you know, if you're driving home at light, late at night and you're stopped at a police checkpoint, um, most of the time it's fine. But every so often you meet somebody who, you know, wants a bribe or wants to make trouble. And so it's a slightly nerve-wracking experience. I think the U.S. border has become a bit like that. I also heard you on Terry Gross's, um, on NPR, fabulous interview as well. Well, I mean, assuming this is fabulous too. But you talked about your daughter and how she was actually very afraid of you coming to America and how, what a change that is. You know, America used to be seen as the place you go, you know, the democratic ideals are withheld and yet your little girl is like, don't go, daddy. She came to America, she's been to America a couple of times before, but the first time she can remember was in August. We came and spent the whole month of, of uh, August in New York, a friend of ours, uh, film director, and he, had a, uh, he was back in Karachi shooting, and his house in Harlem was empty, so he moved in for a month. And the kids loved it. Uh, they said, I don't want to go back to Pakistan. This is amazing. And they kept talking about it afterwards. Oh, our favorite place in the world is New York. We have to go to New York. And so I was very surprised, in a way, when um, uh, my daughter announced, discovering that I was coming to America, that, that she didn't want me to go. And I asked her why, and she said, well, look, there's this guy, Donald Trump, you know, and he's, he's come in, and he hates Muslims, and he hates women, and he was very bad to Hillary Clinton, and, um, and now he wants to, you know, imprison Muslims or throw Muslims in, out of the country, and I don't think it's safe, and you shouldn't go. And she's clearly learned all of these things from speaking to other kids in, in her school. Uh, and she felt very strongly, and she was very frightened. Uh, and there's no other political figure in the world that I think she's aware of in a frightening way. And that's quite saying something. Living, you know, she lives in Pakistan where uh, uh, she's, in a sense, less sheltered from the fact that the world can be a nasty mm -hmm. place. But even so, uh, the only thing that seems to really keep her up uh, or make her frightened is, is this notion um, of you know, a Muslim ban or hatred of Muslims. 
And partly, I suspect, because it caught her by surprise. Like most kids, she didn't really think of herself as being Muslim as such. Uh, I mean, she would have said, of course, that I'm Muslim. But she didn't think that was a kind of group which meant anything from a standpoint of somebody wanting to throw you out or hurt you. Well, and part of the book that you do so well is kind of showing, like, in your book, it's arbitrary groups. The militants come into this unknown city and it's almost like they've just... It's a certain denomination, an unspoken denomination that... And just shows us it could all be us. I mean, this is what your book is about, obviously. Um, And it is us, actually. It's all of us, yes, yes. And so your decision to move home, you'd spent time in the US and in London, and London is in the book. What was that decision for you and your wife? I've been a nomad, so... um my first 30 years were spent more than half in the United States. Um, in my 30s, I was mostly in London, and now I'm back in Pakistan again, um, which is where I've left, lived probably the most, but even so, less than half my life. And, uh, and what happened was in 2009, when our daughter was born, uh, my wife and I had a conversation, and, uh, uh, and we said, look, if we don't go back now, we we might eventually become too frightened to go back. Our Mm. daughter will go to school here, things will get very settled, and we might spend our whole life saying, you know, what if? Better to go back and see, and then if we don't like it, to leave again. And we had that option because we're both British citizens. So so we went back, in a sense, to keep open the possibility of Pakistan in our lives in this way. And having gone back, what immediately became apparent was there was this great love story there. Uh, the love story between our kids and their grandparents. Mm. And you watch this unfolding and you think, you know, it would be kind of heartless to break this up. So, <laughs> so more than anything else, that's kept us there. You know, every morning our kids play with their grandparents and, uh, and in the evening. And, uh, uh, and that's how both my wife and I grew up. And I perhaps hadn't realized how central it was to my view of, like, how life should be, yes. although very rarely can be. And so... For as long as it can be maintained, I'd love to maintain it. In the book, well, I don't want to give away too much because there's um, every. I really want everyone to read it themselves. But there is a quote that where you say, "We are all migrants through time," and there couldn't be anything, you know, more resonant right now. Um, there's a part where um, the characters are in a new place, and you know, of course, they're very worried. These natives in the place are um, desperate to, to retain their lifestyle, retain what, you know, is threatened seemingly by the immigrants who are flushing in. I mean, this is so, um, you know, we could just read the news right now. Um, and Nadia says something interesting, which I feel um, mimicked what we might say that the ones in these countries you know, seeming natives, which are usually the white people who've come and eradicated the actual native population. But she says, I understand them because we, they have more to lose. And then Sayed says, well, we had migrants flooding into our country, but our country, you know, and the conversation goes back and forth, and she's like, well, our country was poor, we had less to lose. Can you talk about that point? Like, that feels like what is the most crucial thing 
that we all have to understand now. It's like everyone holding on so tight to this idea of what they deserve and that a certain group are the ones that risk taking that away from them. Well, I think that in two or three hundred years, people are going to look back at this moment of human history and find it, you know, just as perplexing as we find looking back 200 years ago at people who kept slaves in the United States. They're going to find it just as perplexing that we thought that because somebody was born in a particular place, they were entitled to fundamentally different rights than somebody who was born in a different place. Um, today we accept that there's, you know, racial discrimination, gender discrimination, discrimination on religion or sexual orientation or belief or what you have to say. Those things aren't appropriate, that they, they, are, they deny sort of a basic truth that people are equal. But we very happily tell people that, you know, you're born in a different place. Well, you aren't equal. And, and very often the reason for that is a desire to hold on to what we think we have. You know, things are quite prosperous here in North America for many people or Europe or Australia. Um, and all these hordes of people from poor countries want to come. But the truth is that uh, throughout human history, people have always migrated. You know, five centuries ago, there was no one of European descent uh, here in North America. Three centuries ago, there was no one of European descent in Australia. Um, and, so, and so 500 or 300 years from now, it'll be as different from, you know, what it looks like today as what today looks like from 500 years ago. And so the desire to hold on to what we have is natural. And one more thing I should add is that even the Native Americans migrated. We all evolved in Africa originally. We've all come from somewhere. They're just the, you know, original migrants. And, uh, and so I think what's important now is to begin to articulate, you know, how is there going to be some new future that we can be excited about? Mm. is isn't about somebody losing and somebody else taking, but about new kinds of combinations and new mongrelizations and new hybridizations. And um, America, Australia, countries like that have become incredibly prosperous through exactly this process. So why should we, we be terrified of it today? Uh, there's a kind of nostalgia which has crept into our politics, and I think that's very dangerous. There's also a part in the book where I'm also very troubled by you have an Australian scene very early in the book, and I thought, well, yes. Um, but that's beside... I'm not troubled by that scene. I'm troubled... Although it is a slightly troubling scene. I mean, scene. it is a troubling scene, but we'll let people explore that themselves. But, you know, I recently went home, and on the plane I watched a documentary I have several documentaries about the way as we treat our asylum seekers. And again, I'll quote kind of what you said on NPR about what um, desperate times are you in if you are willing to sever from your parents, like leave a parent behind, which is what, you know, Sayed has to do. Like what are the circumstances that make that the only option? And, I mean, what was that for you? I mean, that's the whole book, isn't yeah. it? Well, there's an enormous sorrow to leaving. I think, you know, we sometimes say, oh, people are coming to our countries, our wealthy countries. They haven't paid their dues. They're taking advantage. They've paid nothing. But the truth is a migrant who sets off, you know, um, against incredible odds, risking their lives, leaving behind everyone they love, uh, leaving behind their city, their food, their music, their friends, their cousins, uh, has paid this enormous price, uh, you know, a price of, of, of real sorrow. And, uh, and that's something which we often don't talk about in the American story or the Australian story, 
a Canadian story, is how sad those stories are. Of course, they're optimistic and they have so much hope in them. But they also have the sorrow that everybody who moves to these places left the place where they used to be. And how you know, tragic must that have felt in some senses to those people. And, and say that Nadia undergo this, they leave this place behind. And Sayyid in particular, who's very close to his parents, um, partly doesn't want to go. I mean, he really doesn't want to go, but is being driven to it. And, uh, and so uh, when they arrive um, to be thought of as these people who've come to steal, who have paid no price, uh, strikes them in part as odd, but they also do understand. Um, it's natural for people to want to hold on to what they have. But the book explores, I suppose, the notion that that that's a myth that we can do it. Life is transient. People change. Countries change. Cities change. Um, if we try to hold on to these things with such a tight grip and ignore, for example, the plight of refugees, we turn our societies into police states. Um, we wind up with massive surveillance. We mass- wind up with a denial of our own rights. And, uh, and to preserve what we have, uh, we make what we have into a prison. Another point, I mean, is um, extremism. And I think, especially in the media, it's, it's um, his, you know, there's a hysteria around it, even though the percentage of people that are even part of it is just is so tiny, but the effect is, you know, disastrous. But a point you made that I thought was so eloquent that I hadn't really heard before is that everyone needs, in their own country or the country they go to, they need to be able to see themselves as the hero of their story. Could you explain that a little more and what it means in the context of extremism? If you look, for example, at, um, at people who engage in terrorism in a country like the United States, most of the time they're native-born citizens uh, or people who have naturalized and lived here for a very long time. Only rarely are they migrants and almost never are they refugees. And so you wonder what happened to make a young person, almost always a young man, but not always, but usually, uh, walk down this path. And if you look at you know, the kind of videos put out by these extremist groups, um, they're, they're sort of like cheap, uh, low-budget action films. You know, uh, young people jumping over you know, some obstacle with guns or engaged in some kind of a thing. And, and you think, you know, why would a young person see themselves as the hero of that action film and not all the other so much better produced, more interesting action films around them. And I think it's partly because um, we don't create an environment where there are those people as action films. So I remember there was this rumor at one time that you know, Idris Elba might become mm-hmm. James Bond. I think that'd be fantastic. Yes. I, think, you know, I think Idris Elba would be you know, a much better James Bond than perhaps any James Bond before him. But, but the bigger significance of that is, why is it difficult to imagine Idris yeah. Elba as James Bond? He's clearly a very sexy guy. He's a very you know, good actor. He has a, you know enormous charisma. I thought you were uh, going to say enormous abs. Yes, also, well, like yes. muscles. And I was like, yeah, that, that too. too. I mean, absolutely. Too. I think, I think only, only Daniel Craig <laughs> can match him in sort of abness. You know? but, uh, but I think that uh, uh, it's, it's that you know, in some ways there's an idea that, oh, well, society isn't ready for that Bond. And, and then the question becomes, well, why aren't we ready for heroes who are black or brown, um, you know, who have names like Idris Elba? Um, and, and that gets, I think, to the root of why young people are attracted to these sorts of stories. They feel around them that 
the society around them isn't ready for them to be the heroes. And they aren't offered ways to visualize being heroes. And part of what I think is important for us as storytellers and people who work in fiction, whether it's um, uh, books or in, uh, in, in television and film, is to recognize the ways in which we are sort of precluding these hero narratives from an entire group of young people. Um, they would much rather be James Bond than some actor in a cheap two-bit you know, ISIS or Al-Qaeda video. Um, let's give them a chance to be James Bond. And, and, uh, and I think that's part of what's missing. I'm so conscious that you have to be whisked away. Um, so I think we'll end there and just have this be... Um, Guys, he's in, he's in hot demand, <laughs> so he has a very busy schedule, and we were so lucky to have you here, um, however briefly, but I know that what we've talked about will make everyone want to go out and get this book. I, I'm, it's, one of the, it's one of the best books I've read in such a long time. It will be in the canon for the worlds and generations to come. So I'd suggest everyone read it so we, you can engage in these conversations with the people you know and love. Thanks a lot. Thank you. For more about this interview and about Lit Up in general, visit us at thelitupshow.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.